Uh, as I said, I want to pose a very simple question this morning and try and answer it for you. What is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Would be uh, another way of putting the same question. I, I want to answer that from Acts chapter 2, actually, but particularly read a few verses, verses 37 to 41, and uh, actually focus on verse 41. So, I'll read those verses first of all. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So what does it mean to be a Christian? I think there really is confusion. I suppose it's not surprising. We've had 2,000 years of history, different traditions. Uh, I mean, it was quite uh, embarrassing and shameful to watch. Uh, I think someone showed it to me on a YouTube thing, uh, which I don't know how to do, because I'm not very techy, but I can see the fascination of it. They showed me on the YouTube thing, Orthodox priests and Armenian priests having a right old punch-up in the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre or something the other week. I mean, it was quite sort of shockingly, amusingly fascinating to watch. They really were thumping into each other. And you think, what's that got to do with Christianity? What is that? But people think, well, is that it? You know, you've got these two strands of Christian tradition fighting quite physically and seriously about this sepulchre monument thing there in Jerusalem. That's just one random example. People say, what is Christianity? It's very confusing. There's so much going on. So I think it's always good to go right back to the beginning. That's what we've done by reading this passage. That's the same way to find out what it is to be a Christian. Because God's still interested in it as he put it down in the Bible. This is the bit that God gave us. God's word. I don't disagree that God has used things in history. Of course he has. He's spoken. I believe God speaks to us today. I believe the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us today. But our guideline, our baseline is here in the Bible. And this is where we need to go to find out, well, what is it to be a Christian? What does it mean? Well, there's no question that this is a very special time to live, to live now after Jesus died and rose again. The Bible calls it a number of things, the last days would be one phrase. It's, it's the last era of God's dealings with humanity. We don't know how long it's going to go on, but God has, in different eras, spoken in different ways. Not, not contradictory, but it's more like unve- unveiling, unrevealing more each time. But the climax of the ages, which is another sort of biblical-based phrase, is the age in which we live. It's the fulfilment of that that's gone before. It's, it's God's top Um, offer. I don't know how to put it. The age of grace, the church age, the new covenant age. These are all terms for the time we live in. After Jesus died and rose again, after the day of Pentecost, the period we're in, AD as opposed to BC. And it's a very important time. 
because there are some very special things to learn about the relationship between God and us human beings. We actually live in an era where it's possible from, for any person from any nation or background, any race, any culture, any age group, social class, gender, sex, whatever way you want to put it, it's possible for them to know God personally. Anyone can be reconciled to the living God. Anyone on the planet. The creator of all things will make himself known to you. You can know him, the living God. You can be filled with his spirit. You can be reconciled to your creator. It's an amazing privilege. It's an awesome and special era to live in after Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. And it's something around that that's what relevant to finding out what it is to be a Christian. What being a Christian is not, it is not keeping a set of rules. Being a Christian is not just another set of rules. Could try Islam, could try this, could try that, try this set of rules. On the rules basis, Christianity is a muddle. Islam is far clearer. On the rules basis, we don't do very well. That's why Muslims and Islam look on us with probably justifiable contempt. From a legalistic point of view, we are a shambles. Whereas, you, you know, you can keep it right, you can get it right and settle. If you want a legalistic religion, you've got it in Islam. But Christian, the way God does deals with, it's not about rules. It's not about laws. That's not how, this is an age of grace. We'll explore that in a moment. Being a Christian is not about being affiliated to an institution of one sort or another. Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, which is the family church even. It's not about being born in a Christian country. It's not about living in the West. Again, a confusion sometimes Islam has. They look at the West, look at America, look at us and think, well, that's Christian. Cause they, and they don't, you know, they're a mess. They don't keep any rules. They've got no order. Well, it's not about being born in a country and following a, a sort of basic national tradition. Being a Christian is not having a benign, vague belief in Jesus. That he's... Well, he was a nice guy or a good man and probably well worth uh, giving some attention to. Being a Christian is not just being a nice person and not doing anybody else any harm as best you can, being kind to everyone. It's nice to live like that, but that is not what being a Christian is. The verses we read, those few verses, and the verses preceding them, the rest of that chapter, really set the template for the Christian faith for the era we're in, and we're still in it. This is still relevant to us. If you want to know what it is, go back here. You might not like it, you might reject it, you might not accept it, but at least you know what you're accepting and rejecting. This is what it's about, the sort of thing in those verses. And if we want to summarise, and sometimes it's best to summarise, I found, for my purposes this morning, verse 41, a useful summary. In verse 41 it says, Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So there were three key elements. They accepted his message, they were baptised, they were added to their number. Now the good news for you is that I've more or less already covered one of those points. It's been demonstrated to you. I'm probably not going to cover the last one in hardly any detail. So you've only got one point. That's the good news. The bad news is that's the point I want to say most about. But it won't be too long. 
So the, the first thing then is they were people who accepted his message. As simple as that. They were people who accepted his message. Now we obviously do need to unpack that. It wouldn't be right to leave it just like that. But that is sort of the core issue of what made these first people converts to Christianity. We are actually looking at the first converts to Christianity. First real Christians. Well they were people who accepted Peter's message. And I would say the first thing to notice is that it was a sort of definition or a sort of division in a way between the crowd who had heard Peter. Because by implication, and I'm sure truly, not everybody accepted his message. It wasn't that everybody who was there and it vaguely experienced the Pentecost event you know, it was a big, big event. It was a big thing going on, you know. There were these people speaking in tongues, in other languages, and there was a real buzz going on around the temple, it would probably be, in Jerusalem. It's quite an event to be at. Now, some people mocked and said, these guys are drunk. And just to have been there didn't make you a Christian. You were at a great historical moment in world history, but that didn't make you a Christian. To be associated with it. Actually, it was those who accepted his message who, were, who became Christians. It's very important to understand that. It's not enough just to vaguely belong to something or be part of the fringe of it. There is a personal commitment, there's an acceptance of something that is part of being a Christian. Now, the word accepted does need a little bit of explanation to our, to our ears because when we, although it, it's obviously English language translated from the Greek and words do have certain connotations or lack of them. For us, it could be quite a mild word, the word accepted in English. You could say, okay, I accept what you say. Basically, I'm not going to argue with you. I'll give you space to believe that. Yeah, I accept. We're not going to, you know, this, did this crowd sort of say, we're not going to crucify you as well, Peter. We accept. You've got something to say. It's worth saying, worth hearing. Yep, off you go. Sort of tolerance. It's nothing like that. It, the word that's translated into accept in our Bibles, the Greek word means something like this, to embrace heartily. Hear that? To embrace heartily. To receive gladly. So that's the sort of meaning. Those who embraced heartily his message. Those who received gladly his message. They went on to be Christians. They became Christians. It's a glad, hearty embracing of the message about Jesus, as we'll see. What was his message? Let's just think about that. And to do that, we'd need to refer to the verses earlier in the chapter. So I won't get reading it, but hopefully they'll come up one at a time as I refer to them. The message they gladly accepted, they heartily embraced, is more or less contained in verses 22 to 36. And the first thing you notice, and this is the most important thing, is that the message is all about a person. It's all about Jesus Christ. The message is not, as I've indicated, a set of rules or a new concept of philosophy or something. The whole thing Peter had spoken about was essentially about a person, Jesus Christ. And that has never changed. Christianity is 100% about Jesus. 
When you work out your faith, you probably will go to church. You will probably try and, and I hope you will, change and be kind to people and all these other things and you will try and follow God's ways. But actually, that is only working out from an an encounter with Jesus Christ. A faith in Jesus Christ. It's all about a person. Now this is very important. Most of the major religions of the world... And they have many, sometimes many things to commend them in terms of human philosophy and art even. Most of them, you could take away the key figure. Muhammad, uh, Confucius, Buddha. You could take away the key figure and provided you kept the teaching or maybe somebody else had done the teaching, you could still have most of what it contains because it's about the teaching. And an actual fact, you could take that figure away. That is not how Christianity is. It really isn't. It's not just about his teaching. The Bible says, Jesus said, I am the way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Not merely he teaches us the way, he shows us the truth, or he tells us how to live. It is fundamentally different. Christianity is about accepting Jesus and accepting what he's done for you, not what you've got to do for him. That's the bottom line. You accept who he is and what he's done for you, not what you've got to do for him. Now, Peter, in his sermon in in Acts uh, 2, draws attention to the fact that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. Now, that is a starting point for Peter, which is a little different for us, because there was absolutely no doubt in the minds of the people listening to Peter that Jesus Christ was a real person. That was a non-issue. They knew he was real. This is barely two months after Jesus has been crucified. That caused a stir in Jerusalem. There was a very public trial. It brought the, the Jews and the Romans together in a unique way. Pilate and Herod were both involved. It was like the top people in the nation were involved in this trial. It was a terrible uh, miscarriage of justice, but but in many ways it stirred up the crowd. There were streets filled with people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And then there was the whole ghastly business of the crucifixion. And then subsequently there had been these strange rumours about a resurrection. But there would have been no doubt in these people's minds, barely eight weeks later, that Jesus was real. The issue was only, who was he? Now, for us, there's a little bit more of a battle. But I'm going to take just two minutes. I haven't got the time to explore it. That's something you could do if you go to an Alpha course, if you've never been on one. But let me assure you in two minutes, just saying to you, I can't use all the evidence. There is ample. There is no question that Jesus Christ of Nazareth really existed. We are actually in the same position as those people. There's no doubt. You see, those people say, oh, well, he didn't exist 2,000 years ago. Maybe he didn't. It's all a myth. That's rubbish. There's no respectable scholar who would argue that Jesus Christ did not exist. A Jesus of Nazareth walked the dusty streets of Palestine and Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. There is absolutely no doubt about it. Ample evidence outside, extra-biblical evidence as well as much else. The fact is, who was this Jesus? And that's what Peter begins to address. He says he is the fulfilment of the messianic prophecies, the Old Testament. He's the redeemer that God promised. Now that is worth noting 
Because actually there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about God's Redeemer Messiah that Jesus clearly fulfills. They were made at least 400 years before he came and he clearly fulfills them. Again, it's so obvious that some people who don't like it sort of argue, well, maybe Jesus contrived deliberately to fulfill them, that he he was actually artificially putting himself in that place. Of course, the problem is quite a number of the prophecies he simply couldn't have engineered, like being born of a virgin, being born in Bethlehem, the flight to Egypt, all the things we'll remember in a few weeks at Christmas, the manner of his death going to the other end, couldn't quite have engineered that, pierced in his hands and his feet, that was an Old Testament prophecy, which no Jewish form of execution would have fulfilled at all, only crucifixion really, amazingly. The place of his burial with the rich man's tomb and all these sort of things, I don't want to hurry over them at one level, but I have to, there are many, many prophecies that Jesus could not remotely have engineered. He was the fulfilment of God's promised saviour, redeemer. That's what Peter proclaimed. And he proclaimed that Jesus was unique in verse 22 of Acts 2. I think some of these verses may come up behind you, but don't worry if they don't. He particularly draws attention to the fact that Jesus was a man, and yet, oh there it is, men are innocent. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now it's only a verse but it contains in it a truth that comes out again and again in the New Testament, that Jesus was unique. He was a real man, but he was God become man. God manifest in the flesh. His humanity was in no doubt. Got tired, hungry, thirsty, felt pain, bled, died, showed human emotions, anger, righteous anger, love, sadness, grief, joy. He underwent what we would consider typical experiences. He had to learn, he was educated, he learnt obedience, he worked as a carpenter for many years, suffered temptation, which he resisted, but he experienced it, suffered rejection by other people, disappointment, a very human life. And yet those who were with him, such as Peter and others, always saw something different in him, something unique and remarkable. And they increasingly realised that this was the (laughs) God-man, the one who was God become man. God associating with humanity to such a degree that he could engage with us, suffer with us, and ultimately bring salvation to us. You know, Jesus' own teaching contains some very strange stuff if this wasn't true. Some of his teaching was very clearly centred on himself and using words that are only attributed to God. And when we think about Jesus' teaching, we can sometimes forget how much he said things like this. He used the I Am title, the God I Am title. talked about himself as I am the bread of life. I am uh, the light of the world. He said, if you want a relationship with God, you have to come through me. I can meet your basic spiritual hunger. I am the resurrection and life. If you've seen me, you've seen God. If you receive me, you receive God. He forgave sins, which only God can do. He said he would judge the world. Now, these are the things that the Jews got very angry about and and actually accused him of blasphemy. And the thing is, they were absolutely right. If they weren't true, it was a valid accusation. 
Because Jesus really did say things like that. And it was either outrageous egomania of a mental sickness level, or it was the truth, or it was incredibly evil and calculating. As people have said, it was either mad, bad, or God. Now, the thing is that the last one, God, in the end, carries weight because Jesus is universally acclaimed for his other teaching. Much of his teaching is clearly wonderful. And people as diverse as Billy Connolly and Mahatma Gandhi would speak very warmly of all the teaching of Jesus. And actually, many other things about him are remarkable and are encouraging us to realise that he wasn't mad or bad. For example... Children felt very safe in his presence and he sat them on his knee. He welcomed them. Women, too, he honoured and welcomed. Indeed, people of all types, lepers, prostitutes, but also the Nicodemuses, the wealthy, the centurion, the, the soldier, the Roman soldier. These people all found something winsome and attractive in Jesus. Many of them were streetwise in different ways. The woman at the well or the prostitutes, they were not naive people. The lepers were used to handling all sorts of abuse. Centurions are not naive. Nicodemus is not naive. These people were not fooled, and yet there was something attractive and wonderful about Jesus. His enemies could find no fault in him, and his friends described him as without sin. And then there were the miracles, the wonderful things he did. Mostly acts of compassion, acts of healing, acts of deliverance. They weren't self-aggrandizement. They weren't showing off. It's hard to square that with mad or bad. It all points strongly to God, to something which Jesus said, demonstrating the heart of God, demonstrating what God is like. God become man amongst us. Now, Peter in his message, which we're thinking about, majored particularly on Jesus' death and resurrection. You can see that in verses 23 and 24. And there they are on the screen for you. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, these things were very important in the message Peter was preaching. And it is strange that the death of Jesus is such a big deal to Christians. We can forget that, but it is strange. In fact, about a third of the Gospels are about the last week of Jesus' life, his death and then his resurrection. And actually, the Christian symbol is a cross, which is a, a, an, act, a, a, an um, object of execution, something people are executed on. It's a horrible thing, really. And yet it's the symbol of our faith. We have bread and wine, which symbolises a body broken and blood poured out. And it's not just gruesomeness. They're, they're trying to remember something. We're remembering a death. And it's very odd, in a way, if you think about it. Now, in these verses, verse 23 tells us that this death was actually part of God's plan. In fact, Jesus came to die. That was really his key purpose. He came to go through that awful experience of the cross and death. And it was God's rescue plan for human beings. To understand that, you need to understand that our biggest problem, all of us, our biggest problem is a disjointed, disconnected relationship with God. And the thing that has disconnected us is our sins and our failures. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says this, Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. You know, we all do things that we know are wrong. 
I mean, I know I do. We don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's. When you actually begin to look at what might be the standard for for harmony with God, for example, the Ten Commandments, which is only a rough sketch, but when you look at them, you know, we're meant to live. That's how a normal person who wasn't a sinner should easily live, in harmony with God, loving him with all their heart and all their mind, uh, loving their neighbour like themselves, not coveting, not not stealing, not uh, adultery and and, and honouring parents. You know, you know the list. Well, it's just like you think, well, nobody could keep all ten of those. Well, that's the point. It shows us the problem, that we are off-centre. We're not as we should be. Or you could compare ourselves to Jesus, who is God's example of a perfect man. And, And most of us, I think, wouldn't claim we live like that. And so there is seriously an issue here. There's a serious issue of a disconnect with God. We're out of sync with God. It's a universal problem and it needed a universal solution. And that's why God came himself. Jesus came to die on the cross. It says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now that gave his son is a brief way of describing the cross really. Jesus was given over to death. He was given over to bear our sins in his body on the tree, to to take away what was between us and God. It's a great exchange. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. That's what this baptism was demonstrating, that when we follow Jesus, it's as though his death applies to us and his life is also imputed to us. And we receive a fresh, clean start. The slate is wiped absolutely clean. We have new life in Jesus Christ. A great exchange. And that's why the resurrection is equally important. And in actual fact, in Acts 2, Peter probably mentions the resurrection more than he does the cross, actually. There's a number of verses that mention You've seen it in 24. You'll find it in 31 and 32. Because the resurrection tells us that the job was finished. Completed. Mission accomplished. Jesus had done it. He had borne our sins. He had taken our judgment. He had delivered us from death and hell and given us the possibility of knowing God personally, having the disconnect linked up, having the sin removed and having a fresh clean start following him and knowing God as our Saviour and our Lord and our Father in heaven. And the resurrection says it's done. It's open. The door to heaven is open. The issues are resolved. All may come and know God because the, 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 the thing has been dealt with. The need of, of, of sin to be judged and removed has been completed. There is a lasting solution to the human problem. And that lasting solution is forgiveness of sins and a new start, a new life in Christ. A, a Holy Spirit engagement. In fact, that's quite an important part. In verse 33, I think you're going to have that on your screen in a moment. In verse 33, we get this. About Jesus, after the resurrection, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. You see, the Christian gospel is Jesus is the answer to our needs. He's borne our sins. He died. He rose again. Now, as a result of that, two wonderful gifts are available. One is forgiveness of sins and the other one is to receive the Holy Spirit. God can can and will 
come into your life and live in you and change you completely from the inside out. You have a supernatural experience. You know God as your saviour, but you know God in your life and in your heart, leading you. And so these two wonderful, glorious gifts are available to all who accept this message, who heartily embrace the truth that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Saviour. I want to follow him. I want what he's got made available to me. And in uh, Acts 2 verse 38, that's sort of summed up. Peter said at the end of his sermon, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's it. That's what it comes to. That's the climax of the message. Understand who Jesus is. Receive the truth of what he's done. Turn, repent simply means turn. It means turn from where you're living now. Change your direction. Look to God and say, God, I receive the truth of what you say Jesus has done for me. I accept this message and I accept that I need forgiveness of sins and I ask for it. I receive the cleansing that you make available and I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. I want the gift of your Spirit. And in a sense, that's it. You say, is that it? Yes, that is it. That is what it is to become a Christian. It's to accept that message, to gladly embrace it, heartily embrace it. Say, that is for me and I accept it and I believe it. Now, when you've done that, the most concrete way you can show you mean it is water baptism. It doesn't save you, but it's a demonstration, a biblical, in fact, it's the only biblical demonstration that you really mean it. That you are saying, yep, I have got faith in Jesus I want a fresh start and I am going to follow him. And I died when he died, I rose with him and that's why I want to be baptised. And it makes sense, it's always closely linked to accepting the message. In the Bible, it's always closely linked to faith. It is here and it will be again and again if you read carefully through the book of Acts in your New Testament. That's what it does. And then it adds, and they were added to the number. Well, that's a natural outworking That's not merely like they formally joined a church. It means that through this act, they actually became members of what the Bible calls the body of Christ. They they joined the family of God, might be a nice, and it's another biblical picture. They were born into a family, God's family. So actually, Christianity is not a private faith. And obviously that doesn't always uh, sit well with modern uh, English mentality, but it's a fact and you can't avoid it. If you're a real Christian... There is no private me in my small corner and you in yours. I just uh, don't need anybody else. I just keep my little faith thing at home. No, no. You are already part of a community of faith by becoming a Christian. You're born into a family. So you will need to ultimately add, add yourself to a local body. You will want to be part of the people of God and to work that out on a day-to-day basis. Added means you know and a group of people who follow Jesus know that you belong to them. That's what it means. I mean, added, it's not a vague word. They knew 3,000 people joined them that day. It's not 3,000 people went off home and thought about it. There were people who accepted the message, got baptised, and were added to the community of faith. And that's what it is to be a Christian. So therefore, it sort of does work out, doesn't it, in 
going to church. But that's a horrible sort of downplaying of what the truth is here. The truth is that you become part of this living body, the people of God, the, the, the body of Christ. Now that will work out in being attached and added to people who will support you, encourage you, challenge you, you will serve with them, you will keep wanting to tell other people about Jesus. So there's a working out. I don't want to be belittle this. There's a working out of your faith. But that's not what makes you a Christian, any more than what baptism makes you. They are working out what it is to be a Christian. But being a Christian is to accept this message. That Jesus is who he said he was, he did what he said he did, he rose again, and there is a potential for me to be forgiven all my sins, have new heart, new life, new spirit, be filled with the Spirit of God, and live following Jesus. And you can do that this morning. I'd encourage you to think and to do it.